Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are chatting with TV writer, producer, and feature screenwriter Jeremy Donner. Jeremy is an award-winning writer in both TV and film. He got a start with the TV movie Legends of the Lost Tomb and was staffed on two critically acclaimed crime dramas, Damages and the Killing, writing multiple episodes and receiving WGA award nominations for both shows. Congratulations on that. That's very cool. Thank you. Jeremy is also a co-writer of one of 2022's most exciting movies, Elvis, directed by Boz Lerman. For his work on the script, Jeremy is nominated for an Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts Award. And isn't Elvis nominated for something else? Could it it's be a best, bunch. It's best nominated picture for eight. Oscar, perhaps? Like eight. Eight, eight Oscar nominations, year, right? Yeah. Let's just... That's huge. Uh, woohoo. So welcome, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's so fun to be here. So now, before we get into our chat with you, um, you've agreed to talk, to do our segment about our week that we like to call Adventures in Screenwriting. We'll have Lorian go first. Lorian, how was your week? Uh, Good. I have to quickly go back and remind myself what my week... Oh, yeah. My week was... um, I was heads down working on a pitch, and I did a practice pitch on Friday, which went really well. I got compliments, and I heard them and said, thank you. And it's something really nice about having like a successful moment on a Friday. Cause then I just sort of went into the weekend, like, you know, like everything's going to be okay. Like, even though, you know, I have another pitch tomorrow and then, you know, move, you know, moving forward and notes and all that stuff. But like, and you know, uh, it was my daughter's birthday party on Saturday. So I like had this really great weekend sort of like crushed it moving in can chill. You know, I, I haven't had one of those in a really long time, so it felt really good. And, uh, you know, and I'm working on it cause I have, I have another round of pitches, but, um, it was really great. It was really fun. And I played with the AI GPT, what's it called? The chat oh, yeah. bot quite a bit yeah. this, this week. Um, I find it exciting and terrifying all at once. Um, but, uh, we're going to yeah, talk about a, it because Jeremy also yeah. wants to talk about that. So yeah. We'll talk anyway, about so that. that was a little thing I dove into a bit. It's, it's a, a very brave thing to have suck. a meeting like that on a Friday because yeah. you might go into your weekend flying high. You might go into your weekend <laughs> bottomed out. But it, it is something so powerful about just like a teeny bit of external validation about the hard work and the writing. And, you know, it, it just like it's a teeny it's just so powerful. Like I don't need external validation. I'm enough as I am, but and yet really, we all I, do. I yeah. do really need it. Yeah, we all do. Jeremy, so, how was your week? Oh, it was good. I mean, I, I feel like I'm having a similar week to Lorian here. Uh, you know, it's like these are rare moments where you've just completed something and it seems like it went well and you get to just like exhale and like have a life you know, or what feels like a life for a few days, which is awesome. So, um, but you know, there's still work to do, but it's a good place to be when you can, when it happens, which is super rare. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My week was, uh, 
you know, my son is in film school and I just realized listening to him talk about his internal dialogue of what's happening in his head, you know, as he thinks about his stuff, which I hear my own dialogue. And I just think there's a very big difference between looking at your work and judging it, um, which is all those voices that say, may start making the list of what I can't do, what doesn't work, what this is cliche, that's unoriginal. It's all the kind of what doesn't work, what I'm not talented at doing, all of that kind of assessment versus, you know, what I learned at Pixar, because you can't really walk into one of those rooms in that mindset. Uh, you have to walk into the room knowing those things, but the interpretation is, okay, what can I do? You know, given that, what can I do? What's the best version of this? What would be unexpected? What would be fun? So it's a different mentality. You're still looking at the same pages. You might even have the same assessment of those pages, but it's kind of seeing it through the frame of play. And it's kind of like, you know, in improv, you don't ever say, but, right? It's not like, well, I read my script, but it doesn't work here. And, but it's bad there. And, but, but, but I, that one's cliche, but it's and. Okay. So this is the straightforward version one, right? Which may be the expected version. So, and it could be this or it could be that. And it's just the kind of that play, which I've really had to in hearing my son's inner monologue uh, to kind of put into relief my own and just the work it takes to, as you're going through and getting constant sets of notes and you're constantly evaluating to not forget that, that sometimes the way to get to the answer is to think about what you can do and what's possible. Um, everybody writes the cliche expected first version. That's just, that's the stone to get to, okay, but then what else could it be? How can we push this? How else could this actualize? So it was just one of those, one of those weeks of trying to <laughs> keep it positive people. Yeah. Yes. I want to add to that just a little bit. I, you know, it's been almost a year since my daughter was diagnosed with type one diabetes. So her diversary is coming up, which is apparently a thing that requires presence. Right. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I have to add that to my list. Um, but, um, I was really struggling yesterday about like this whole year was such a shit show and I didn't get enough done and I wasn't out there in the way and like this project stalled and this, and I was texting to a friend. Sorry, Meg, it wasn't you. Um, and okay. she called me and she said, I happen to know that you did this and this and this, right? And then you had this huge medical crisis happen. And I had family also get very ill at exactly the same time. And and I realized after listening to her that I did what I can I could do, right? Like I wasn't, I wasn't capable of doing a shit ton. I wasn't in a place where I could move through things like I can if my kid isn't sick with something I don't understand and I have to do math and science about, you know, um, but it really was about, and I didn't realize it at the time, Meg, that it was like, what can I do? It was what should I be doing? What must I be doing? All this pressure and everything. And I think that's just some really good perspective about as I look back on this past year, which you can't help but doing when you're trying to be thinking about its diversity, right? Yay, one year of type one diabetes in our family. Hooray, right? Here's yeah, a I mean, what what can I do can be that. It can be giving yourself a break. And it can also be fun. It can be like, what could you do right now? What what 
what you use your you know use the fun play of it what what would be the craziest way to get into this scene right yeah. what would be Part something of, how yeah. can i get to that or i know the story beat needs to go but in a, a different road than anybody's even thought about what if i had the character do the opposite of what everybody expects her to do right now or whatever yeah. um so just trying to remember to play in that in that right i love that i mean i also think of it like what do i have control over and what do i not we don't have control over what medical things pop up or like what your kid's going to come from home from school telling you or when the phone rings and it's the school calling and all these <laughs> kinds of things that we all deal with. So you can have your plan of what you're going to be writing and what your focus is going to be for a week and, you, and it gets completely upended. So, um, you know, I've also learned that, you know, some things you just don't have control over and you sometimes have to let go of that perfect plan you had for what you were going to do. <laughs> Which is very frustrating. I love the perfect plan. (laughs) Yeah. And also, you know, just events like in projects and things like you don't have control over certain things. And, you know, when you remember that, at least for me, a lot of the stress and a lot of the self-judgment goes out the window and I can just relax and do what I can do. Like, what can I, what can I do? It's such a good reminder. What can you, you know, have fun doing? Like it's, this is supposed to be fun people. Yes, I remind myself of that all the time. Like if you're not having fun writing it, we're not going to have fun reading it or watching it. So uh, sometimes that's just a litmus test of going through and this is entertaining. Is it fun? Yeah. Yes, because I think it... that was the problem with one of my projects is that I I wrote it about my daughter's experience, about my experience with my daughter. And it was so hard to have fun with it because it felt right. like jumping into the lava, but it was like trauma lava it wasn't the kind of lava that you can pull your face back out of so it was like I finally got through it to a place where I'm like oh this is a fun project I can have fun with this you know but it was really about uh yeah that's the I think we talk we talk about that on the show and we get questions like that all the time like how do you know when the lava is too hot to go into and maybe that is a good barometer maybe there's something in there I don't know what it is but like just in terms of can you pull your face back out of it and still move through your day you know, or I don't know, this isn't a very articulate thing, but oh, you no, know, I, I'm not through it yet. <laughs> I totally relate. I mean, I, and if I do catch myself not having fun, I'm like, hey, you chose this, right? This was exciting to you. You wanted to do this. How and why did you forget that? Like, you know? Yeah. Even though there's so, clearly yeah. moments in every yeah. project where you're like, why did I, why did I say <laughs> yes to this? Wait a minute. Yes. What, what was it? Why did I like this? That's just part. That's just like par on the course of uh, of the writing. So, Jeremy, we always like to ask first, how did you break into the business? Because a lot of our listeners like to hear about. Uh, I guess like breaking in was being in film school. I had a friend from college um, whose whose parents were producers I had worked on a movie of theirs like over summer in college and then shared some of my short film scripts during film school with them and and then got a chance to like write a movie for Showtime, right? Uh, which is like a long time ago, you know, back in the day. So I was still in, I was like in between first and second year of film school and was like writing this. First it was a treatment, then they approved it and it was shooting and it was really exciting. It was my first money, you know, job, you know, really. So that's, so that's how it still got in started. college. You were still in film school. Wow. I was. And I that's was so like, cool. That's so unusual. 
yeah, it was really strange because I also had my deadlines for school and I didn't tell anyone in my class that I was doing this. So I was trying to just like lead the double life of, yeah. Yeah. It was funny. <laughs> you were going to school to be a, a writer and you were secretly writing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, very complex. I, I know it was very <laughs> complex, but I, it meant I ended up like the script that I was supposed to be writing there. I ended up having to write in like a week, you know, uh, instead of a whole semester or whatever it was. So yes, I got myself into some That's hot water, training. early lessons. Yes, <laughs> That's good totally. training. Yes. Well, let's talk about Elvis because that's the fun movie that we've all seen and, and so enjoyed. How did you get involved with the Elvis Project? I don't know anything about your involvement. Did you originate it? Kind of where did it come from? Uh, it was it was a great phone call that I got um, that Courtney Valenti, who just left Warner Brothers after like decades there and is one of the most amazing executives to work with. Um, she had read my writing there, um, some scripts I'd written at Warner Brothers, and she called up and said, are you interested? And, uh, you know, Baz Luhrmann had the intention of making an Elvis movie, um, and there was, you know, sort of an intention to do a modern Amadeus as the structure. So that's where it started with, and are you interested? And I was like, hell yeah. So um, it started with that, so I just pitched my take. Um, to the studio and uh, you know they they liked it and you know again assuming they ran it by Baz at that point and then I wrote a treatment uh, and the deal was at the time like if the treatment will go to Baz and if he likes it then uh, it'll go to script so um, so that's what happened um, and we went from there. I think that's awesome the magical phone call right something we all dream about like the phone rings and you're like oh it's a job. I Um, like those calls yeah. How long did it take you to come up with your take? Um, like a couple, like two to three weeks, probably, you know, between the phone call and when I went in and pitched it to them. Uh, and then I had to do some research, you know, to write the treatment. I had to do a deeper dive into Elvis because it's not like I came to the table, you know, like I'm a fan of his mu- music, like I'm a fan of like 50 people's music. You know what I mean? I wasn't like an off the shelf Elvis fan necessarily, but I did love his story, um, you know, and recognizing it an opportunity, you know, so that's what was exciting to me. And I loved the idea of a, of an Amadeus structure for it, you know? Um, I mean, like the thing before I committed to doing it, you know, the thing I had to ask myself though, was like, is that a believable structure? Could you make the movie from the point of view of, you know, his manager and make it believable that he quote unquote destroyed him or murdered him even. Right. And so I was, you know, skeptical, like until I dug into this guy, Colonel Parker, you know, and realized that he was not a Colonel. He was not Parker. He was this Dutch fugitive, you know, and that he was implicated. This didn't make it into the movie, but like what really sold it for me was the, the reason he fled when he was 19, uh, there was a girl who lived downstairs from him and worked at, or who worked in the shop, like right down from where he lived. And she turned up dead in the shop, like right after she uh, got engaged to some other guy. And, I, and he disappeared, no wallet, no passport, without telling his family that night and jumped on a boat to the United States and joined no the way. army. Yeah, and then was released, discharged from the U.S. Army 
as a psychopath. So I was just like, all right, I'm in. I believe I, I can believe that guy purposely destroyed somebody or 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 not. So that was that was what really excited me from the start. That was and a did villain. You, did you end up co-writing with Boz or, you know, every director is different when they're co-writers. Some that just means they take their shot at it and some actually work with the other writer. What was your process? So in this case, Baz was um, making, he was in the middle of doing a series, uh, The Get Down for Netflix in New York. And as he put it himself, like when he's doing something, he's all in on it. So he, this was like a seed that he planted, you know, with Warner Brothers and he was not there for the beginning of it. So, um, you know, I wrote the treatment. It went to him. I got a really nice email back, you know, uh, you know, excited about it and approving it. It was like a 25 page treatment. Um, so pretty detailed. And then uh, and so then I went off to script. I did two studio drafts before we shared it with Baz. And then I did a third after that. Um, and uh, he would give me notes by email because he was in New York and busy doing his show. So um, over it was a year and a half's work between the phone call and, you know, the end of draft three at the end of the day. So it was, a, it was a long work, but I, official, I did the writing official, on my own. Yeah. Official yeah. draft three, right? Official draft right. three. Which is was probably a lot six of... or nine or 10 or who knows how many, right? Yeah, this one was a beast to wrestle. And there was a lot of, you know, agonizing over making it work and the right structure and all of that. A lot of phone calls from, um, you know, my producer sort of tapping on my shoulder, like saying, what's going on? Um, Gail Berman gently and nicely. Uh, but yeah. So, um, yeah, it took a long time to get right, but it felt like that's what it took to crack this. And, you know, so then with that basic structure, Baz, then, um, he was working, I think with Sam Bromell on the get down, if I have it right. Um, you know, and, you know, music was a huge part of that. So he wanted to work with, as he put it, like, you know, his team that could bring a, a music layer to it and do work through it that way. Um, so they did a, a writing team pass on the script. Um, and then Craig is like his longtime collaborator. They've been credited on every script together, you know, for 20 years that he's ever done, I believe. So um, Craig, I think, was also busy on a show for the BBC or something like that or in England. So I think when he popped free, most likely is when he rejoined Baz and they worked on it as well. So, yeah, but that was after me. So I look when people ask, I say I did the morning shift and someone else did the night shift. So, uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, the story you told about Colonel Parker sort of will not leave mm -hmm. me alone. And Amir, one of yeah. our listeners asked, what were the conversations around what to include? So I'm so curious, like, is it, was it the tone of that story and why you didn't include it or, or, you know, like, how did you decide? That's a great question. And I, I actually wondered the same thing and don't know. So there was a draft in which it was made more explicit, um, you know, in my draft, that was made explicit, right? Um, that, you know, you can't say for sure that he killed that girl and no, because nobody knows for sure. The only thing is like those events happened and he was wanted for questioning and he disappeared and it was mighty suspicious. So 
Um, you know, and yeah, so there was a little more of that side of the story in some of the earlier drafts uh, that I wrote. Um, and what about like Elvis? Yeah. Like, you know, a lot of our listeners are attempting or have attempted biopics, right? So mm-hmm. even from a biopic standpoint, for you doing this process, what were you going to include about Elvis's life? I mean, you can't include everything. Obviously, you've got to pick a pick a pony, as I say. So how, how was that process like for you? Well, it's I think like, especially around the time, which was a bunch of years ago already when I started this, because it took five and a half years to get it to the screen. Um, you know, I, you know, there had been like this sort of trend of focusing on a, just a chapter of somebody's life, you know, not trying to do the cradle to the grave story. But for this one, I just felt like that was the best structure to tell. I mean, I personally love rise and fall stories. I just love them. You know what I mean? And so, and this felt like it was made for that. It was, you know, it was made for that Amadeus type sweep, you know? So, um, so I tried to include, like, you can't include everything, but I tried to find, you know, inflection points that seemed important to the story and, and where Parker's manipulation of him, you know, could be highlighted, um, like his decision to join the U.S. Army um, and things like that, which in some ways really torpedoed the career and the success that he was having um, and really Parker may have, you know, had, did have his own ulterior motives that were not necessarily in line with uh, Elvis's. Yeah. And do you think that Elvis must have been susceptible to that manipulation, right? Like he, you know, because the other trick we have often with emerging writers is the the main character in essence becomes a victim, which is not, you know, great story uh, generating. Um, But what I loved about Elvis is you don't get that sense. Like Elvis is participating oddly in his own rise and fall. He is. I think he was uniquely susceptible. I think he didn't have a strong father figure and Parker presented himself as one. And he, he, he said at times, you know, I love you like a father. You're like the father I never had and hugged him. I mean, there's a scene in the closet, um, you know, that's sort of like that. And that was real. I mean, that relationship, um, I think like what saves in some ways Elvis from being a victim purely is that he had enormous power. You know, and I think like people forget that people forget how revolutionary he was, um, you know, and, you know, for me, the whole movie was essentially a mythic thing. It was Dionysus. It was the person who inspires these minads, these girls into a frenzy, but is ultimately devoured by it. And, and that was in the treatment. I mean, it was that simple. So when you look at the first, you know, the the hayride, you know, that early scene, um, you know, it's it, where the girls are going crazy. And then you bookend that with Vegas and he's going out into the audience and the girls are kissing him one by one, but it's clear he's killing himself to be available for them. It's sort of, that's the sweep there. So it really lent itself to the rise and fall structure. I love that because I hope our listeners who are writers and con- contemplating biopics can hear the pitch, even in just how Jeremy's <laughs> describing it right now. You know, a lot of times, like w- when we're at Austin or other places and people start talking to us, they'll say, OK, well, this person ex- lived and they were born here and then they did this and then they did this. And you're like, that's not a story. <laughs> that's a life. And even Jeremy and just that quick 
like what was interesting to you, you can start to hear the pitch, you know, this mythic tale, the rise and fall and what devoured him and the main relationships with the colonel and it's Amadeus. Like you're starting, like, okay, I that's a Baz Luhrmann movie. I get that. It's it's just, it's just so great. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So Elvis that was, was my a real person. for it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Elvis was a real person. The colonel was a real person. So how do you approach... Uh, this material, knowing that they were alive and their families are still alive and people who were close to them are alive. How do you separate or worry or what is the thought process around that? I mean, Elvis massive world, massive. Yes. Well, I mean, listen, I wrote it, you know, and did my part of the writing with a lot of affection for Elvis. I mean, to me, he's a sympathetic and tragic figure who didn't get the doesn't get the credit, you know, as of last year in our culture, you know, he's, he was starting to slide into, a, as Baz has said too, like a Halloween costume and, and sort of a caricature. Um, so to resurrect him from that and to show what a beautiful soul he was and how revolutionary and, you know, and, and that he was at the crossroads of different musical traditions and, race and so many things you know it was uh i mean i think it was just uh you know inspiring uh, did you work at all with the family in your research did you ever talk to anybody who knew him or or, or was going to actually be in the movie and like what was that responsibility like if you did so one of the early things and i was already writing uh, uh the studio flew me to um me and a producer to um, memphis and we met with the um majority owner of elvis's estate who's very tight with the family um you know and very protective obviously of elvis and the, as a as a person and the brand as well um, and so he hosted us basically um, there and it was amazing and took us behind the scenes and we were going through like the drawers that had the receipts for every item of clothing hanging in the closet and just like, you know, just being in these, in, in that intimate space and seeing these things was incredible. So it was like a four day, you know, behind the scenes thing. So that, and definitely um, the estate you know, as represented by him, had certain points of view, you know, on the material, like, um, you know, drugs were not something they wanted to highlight, for instance. Uh, so that's a unique issue, you know, because you're, you know, if somebody is saying something, for instance, like, well, you know, he really didn't have a problem with drugs, you know, that's all BS, right? I mean, what do you do with that? You know, <laughs> and so it's kind of like, well, he kind of did. But that doesn't mean it's a bad, he was bad. You know what I mean? It's like, and as you see in the movie, it's just like you, your heart goes out to him as you see him increasingly dependent upon these medications, you know? So, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, you know, I had to be aware of the estate's agenda and uh, the, the family's feelings. Um, but ultimately what made me feel secure and, depicting some of these things is when you look at the whole thing, it's, it was a sympathetic, loving, celebratory portrait of him. So I wasn't, I believed, I trusted that that would come through. And, and that's sort of what happened. So. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, when you got that call, and it was like, mm -hmm. how about this? And you were working on the treatment, if you don't mind, what was it that you personally connected to? What was your 
like the the draw in you know you have these big ideas right Dionysus and the Amadeus structure but like was there something where you're like I'm the only one who can tell this story uh that is often like the great place to start on any project as you guys I'm sure know you know for me um it didn't this was not overtly personal for me at the start um but I do relate to um you know, it was more the the themes and the mythic story spoke to me, you know, as a, you know, I mean, it's, it's to tell these kind of myths that I wanted to be a writer, you know, I loved reading about them as a kid and, you know, to, to be able to, and I loved Amadeus, you know, I mean, it's just like one of my all time favorite movies. So if somebody says that to me, then I'm going to be like, yes, I want to try to do this. But like, you know, I, I think, uh, Meg, what you were talking about with your son at film school, it's just like instantly you're in, you're standing in the shadow of greatness before you've even started. And you, you know, so I, I had to wrestle with that and know that, you know, try to say it's OK if I just do my, you know, version, my best try, you know, what I mean, and there's going to be a lot of people to help along the way. You know what I mean? Um, but just to take that first step into it. So. Um, but yeah, for me, it was the mythic tale and, and, and just my heart going out to this guy, you know, and, you know, you know, believing in him and also just, you know, I guess thematically just the, the art versus commerce of it, I found really appealing. It's a dilemma that you face in your life, you know, as a creative. Um, and he was at the crux of that. You kind of had the hard commerce of you know, of it and represented by Parker and you had the pure artist, the sensitive soul, you know, and I've got, you know, I've got probably a version of both those characters in me or I right. wouldn't be having a career, you know? Yeah. And that's love- great. That's great. I love that, that it's two warring parts of yourself that are going to act out now in this kind of mythic rise and fall. Pretty awesome. And I love that perspective in terms of like, it's not some like, you can't immediately go like, it's this trauma I had with my my dad or, you know, like it's that it can be personal in terms of like what you loved as a kid and the kinds of stories you love and the kinds of stories you want to tell. It doesn't always have to be this, you know, because I write from trauma, blah, blah, blah. But I also <laughs> loved myth myths and legends and, read, you know, and I'm trying to figure out how to break a story right now around that. But like it's I love it. It's a different perspective. It's a different way. Like it's the outside in version. Right? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, which is also incredibly, you know, legit. Sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, one thing I, I mean, I did relate to um, the sensitivity. I think both these guys were sensitive, you know, and romantic, you know, in a weird way. I mean, and, and one of them, that sensitivity and romance fed into art and creating something beautiful. And for the other guy, it turned to murder and psychopathy, potentially, allegedly, potentially, right? But I, just the, the possibility of that, that clearly this guy as a young man fell hard for this girl, you know, downstairs in my imagining of it and couldn't deal with the fact that she rejected him, you know, 
or wasn't even interested in him most likely. So, which is so great yeah. in terms of, you know, the love affair in essence, he's going to have with Elvis that Elvis could never reject him, right? That he can't handle rejection. He can't handle that. So exactly. Good. So every time Elvis tries to pull away from him in any way, it's recapitulating that abandonment fear that, you know, Parker has, and you see him tightening his grip around him, you know, tighter and tighter. So yes. Um, I thought in a weird way, Elvis and Parker were two sides of the same coin and that they were both sensitive souls, but one was able to express it through art and for the other, it turned dark. So at least that's, that's how, you know, I related. So here's where I make the podcast awkward. I'm sorry mm -hmm. if I suggested that you did not come at this personally, because, you know, like, of course you did, of course you're sensitive and you're talking about art and commerce and two sides, you know, all that stuff. So I, I did not mean to suggest that you're all outside in and that you don't also have some personal connection just because you didn't share it with us on the show. So no, I not at all. I realized how that came yeah. out and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it didn't come out badly at all. I think it's actually completely <laughs> deserved and true. Like, you know, I came at it initially from like, oh, a chance to do on it. It's like, it wasn't until I was in the muck of it that I realized why this spoke to me. You know, that's and, so and, true. That's so true. Yeah. So often you don't know why your heart wants to do something until later. I mean, also, sometimes your brain is what wants to do it, not even your heart, you know, and then but I feel like the job is getting in there and finding what's personal about it, you know, and what you relate to in it. And, you know, so that doesn't always have to happen at the top. You know, they tell you, you know, the agents tell you it helps sell things, especially on the TV side, if you can find that personal thing and put it up front, like at the very top of your pitch. Right. Um, but that doesn't always happen. And I don't always see things on the movie side that way. You know, um, what was so, that so interesting. Yeah. What was that transition like from television uh, over to feature? Because you began well, but you wrote a, a Showtime feature first. So you go back and forth. Have you been going back and forth your whole career? I guess I have. I mean, I really like my first love um, growing up was movies, you know, so, um, you know, more than television initially, but that was because, you know, I, but then, you know, so much great TV, you know, increasingly has been made and, you know, it's not true. I love TV as a kid too, you know, um, but, you know, my sort of dream I was chasing out here was more features based, but, um, you know, starting on I mean, but I love TV. I fell in love with TV through doing TV, you know, and just being in a writer's room, collaborating, being on set, you know, collaborating with all those, the, the department heads and the actors. And it's just like a, it's unbelievable and beautiful. So yes, I've been lucky that I've been able to do both. And I love both for different reasons. Yeah. Do you have a favorite uh, TV show story you want to share with us? <laughs> uh, that's a good question oh my god um i'm sure there are ones i i tell stories from those days all the time but of course they're now all flood fleeing my oh, mind it's like hey what are you instance? watching on tv yeah. and you're like i don't yeah. know what's tv <laughs> um i'm thinking about it i mean uh you know it's it's funny some of the moments that i cherish from TV were like moments where, you know, that were like the most contentious or like personality clashes or when there was a problem, you know, and how it got solved, 
you know what I mean? And, you know, I, I think like, I don't know, when I think of TV, I don't necessarily, I, I don't have a ready to go anecdote off the top of my head right now. I'm sure it'll hit me like as soon as we <laughs> sign off. But, you know, one thing that did I did learn is, you know, just how vulnerable actors make themselves in, in delivering their parts. And I was witness to some quote unquote bad behavior on set and some very punitive responses to it, um, you know, by the studio, um, by a showrunner and things like that. And what struck me, and I guess it kind of follows from our conversation about Elvis, like what I saw is somebody, an actor who's putting themselves like in an incredibly vulnerable spot and delivering the goods, by the way, when you look at the scenes, it's there and it's there. There's a reason they're nominated for an Emmy. You know what I mean? And, um, and it's it's kind of what I don't understand sometimes is the expectation that somebody who goes to that place and then we ask to go to that place should behave completely normally and well-adjusted like instantly five minutes later <laughs> or a day later or two later, two days later. Yes, there are some people who are able to go to those places and are really also well-adjusted. There's a lot of people we love and value as actors who just yeah. aren't that way. And I just, uh, you know, I was I was lucky enough to be able I was actually flown onto set to help mediate a situation with someone who wasn't quote unquote coming out of their trailer and it and it worked out really well and I just feel like you know um, yeah it was just because I don't have that expectation my ex my expectation was yeah of course you're all fucked up and, you know insecure and paranoid like I would be too if I was doing what you were doing every day. So and that's yeah. such great, a, such yeah. a great reminder and perspective. We sort of all have that again. It's that same thing like art and commerce, right? We're asked to be vulnerable mm -hmm. and deliver the creative goods. And yet it is a business and totally. figuring out what that balance is. Uh, it's a good reminder, you know, that, yeah, thank you for that. I do think it's important to give actors that space because like at the end of the day, it's not your face that's going to be 70 feet large on a screen. And it's like, you know, you bled on the page or you bled behind the camera if you're a writer director, but like those actors are bleeding on camera. So I, I totally agree with you that like there is, there should be some room for space when it comes to actors on set. Um, but what I was going to say is I'm a huge fan of Damages and the Killing. And I feel like Damages is one of the shows that kind of made FX like a prestige network kind of, I sometimes roll my eyes at that term, but there is something to be said about like the birth of prestige TV and what I like about both of those shows is I feel like they're nodding to their sort of network counterparts, but they're making specific choices to elevate themselves above some of those shows. Like damages would take a whole season to tell the story of a court case. And there were nonlinear storytelling elements. And it just, those shows were special, I think in that way. And I don't know if you agree or disagree, but I'd love to hear you kind of speak on that and what kinds of conversations you all were having in the room around that. And maybe what our emerging writers can learn from some of those conversations. Oh, it's such a great point that you bring up. I mean, I think that uh, I was just having a conversation literally this weekend with a younger writer about this, um, you know, and what you're talking about hasn't changed. I mean, it's still going on. You see shows right now. I mean, what you're talking about is, and it's, it's the theme, I guess, we're hitting in this podcast is like the commerce versus the art of it. Um and and I remember hearing, if I, I think I'm correct, that Mike White was talking about um, the White Lotus and talking about his decision to start it with a murder 
you know, and, and it was sort of like the way he talked about it is like, I know, like, that's what an HBO show is supposed to do. That's what they're doing. And I want this to get programmed, you know, and I want, you know, people to come see it. So I'm going to I'm going to give them that. But what I'm interested in and is the content of the show and what we're going to get into and those relationships. So I, I think that's always going on. Um, and they're not, they don't, I mean, look at just, I mean, I'm a huge fan of that show. Just look at how brilliant and beautiful it is, you know, and it's not cheapened in any way by the fact that it made a choice to fulfill a genre and a programming mandate. You know, it's like all it did was allow it to get made so that it could reach us, you know? So, um, so yeah, there were elements of, you know, certainly the killing felt like um, I, I know Vina had worked on Cold Case and been the showrunner of Cold Case before she created that. So there was definitely a consciousness that we were taking procedural elements, but we were slowing it down. We were digging into character more and telling it over the course of a season. Um, and and certainly with like uh, the creators of Damages, that was, you know, their intention was to do something that bridged that gap too, that was elevated, you know. Um, and those guys were always in the room pushing us, you know, and pushing to find the, you know, something extra, something more, something less obvious. So, yeah. It's kind of like Trojan horsing the elegance into your show. Like, I, I heard that Mike White interview and he was like, maybe more people would have watched Enlightened if we just murdered someone at the beginning of the show. But I think it's I, what I hear you saying. And you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, is that like our emerging writers need to think about if they're going to approach these complicated, maybe elevated ideas or really dig into trauma and lava, they need to have some of that sugar too, or sort of Trojan horse, something that makes it feel relatable or sellable. And then they can sneak that stuff in sort of. Yeah. I mean, honey to go along with the medicine was sort of what I was talking this weekend about, but I think it's, it's uh, yeah, I think that it it helps. Um, I also think it's, it's, it's beyond that. I think that like, um if there's something you want to say if you put it out front and forward sometimes it turns people off you know that's just the reality um so if you start with what's more i mean to use a dirty word commercial and invite people in who might not be interested in a show about like if you if you were like sexual politics and you know, um, you know, and generational um, trauma, like people might be like, yeah, it's been a long week. I'll watch something else. Right. <laughs> but if you say like. Beautiful place, it's Sicily and there's a dead body, there's two dead bodies, then somebody's going to be like, oh, well, I, I want to watch that. I want to find out who did it. And, and you know, and, and it keeps you watching episode after episode. But three episodes in, you're loving the show. Uh, for its sexual politics and all these themes that it's getting at. And I think that's what happens to people, that they you do get the good stuff. But if you try and wear it on your sleeve and make that what the show is about and say, so I'm not going to cheapen it by by pandering. I mean, you just, I, I think you, it's harder. And I don't think it's as satisfying either. So I just want to say to all our emerging writers, we're not saying murder someone in the beginning of all of your shows. So when I was a, an adjunct professor, I was teaching a January term class at playwriting and we were talking about stakes and I used, you know, murder as an example. And I got 17 plays where a murder took place. I had 17 students. 
So just like, that's not exactly what you're saying. So I just want everyone to not think, wow, what if I put a murder at the beginning of my script? I mean, maybe it'll work, but you know, just let's not, we're not saying it's a prescriptive solution. We're saying entertainment genre, fun. Exactly. You know, and not, yes, murder is fun. That's why you're watching the story. Who done it, you know? Um, So Jeremy, um, we also um wanted to talk have time to talk about the um chatbots and the AI that uh Lorian brought up at the beginning of the show. And I know that you're particularly wondering about it or questioning it. Totally. I'm excited to hear that you've already used it, Lorian, like this week. Yeah. I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah, it was fun. I was like, okay, what can this thing do? So I typed in, you know, write a log line for a children's show about a girl and a dolphin. And it did. And then I was like, add a theme of this. And it did. Um, And I kept adding things. Right. And then I would say, write a synopsis of the show, write a treatment of the show. And it would write like the genre and episodes, um, which is fun, not emotional at all. You know, and I'd have to say, like, add character relationships. But it was all very um, by the book. You know, like it, it didn't have any zing, but I could see where you could take that and add your own zing to it. But uh, and it's supposed to be learning as you go, like as you are continuing to ask it questions, it's supposed to be learning you. But what I realized is unlike how a person works, like if we were working on something together and I'd be like, okay, it's a girl and a dolphin. And then you'd bring something to the table and then we'd change it. And then we'd add it based on that change. We'd like continue to elevate it. The chat bot would just make the change, but incorporate it into what was already there. So it wasn't it wasn't elevating the material in a way that two people can. It was super fun, but I didn't feel like I got anything out of it that I can actually take and go pitch or use. Even the the girl with the dolphin show, like, I don't know, it didn't come from any place real for me. So I was like, yeah, this, I guess, but it didn't, I don't know. It was just very interesting. I certainly had fun with it though. Boy. It, Have you tried it, was- it Jeremy? Uh, I actually, I'm, I'm like probably literally like an hour away from trying it. <laughs> just been like inching up to the pool and like, you know, watching other people dip their toe in and seeing how it is. But I think I'm ready to get in myself. Like, it, like even in the last week, I've, yeah, I know of a director who, I mean, just even just used it to write her biography, you know, she was just like, write a biography of, you know, and said her name and it did like a really good service more than serviceable just like bio of her and i was like wow that's helpful and then another writer i know was like you know i don't know if you guys uh wrestle with character names uh, you know but like especially in tv where every episode you're having to come up with like or, or different you know or a movie i was recently working on where it's like it was like all these irish characters and like and everything has to then pass through um what's it called you know when uh, it has to be screened for a legal, so you're yes, not like representing yeah. someone real. Um, and so you're just like coming up with lists of like 20 different names for like lorry driver, right? And uh, it's like chat GPT will just come up with that list of names, like name Irish, blah, 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 you know, um, you know, who aren't famous or stuff like that. So I think yeah. that like even on like basic ground level stuff, it sounds really helpful. But the thing that really excited me was seeing a New York Times article where in a big splashy way they they someone had asked it to combine Joe Dorowski, the filmmaker. I don't know if you guys saw that with Tron. And yeah. it was mind blowing. Like the visuals. 
that they came up with and just, I mean, it was like unbelievable. So as a proof of concept, I thought it was kind of undeniable. So I'm it's actually- funny because yeah. it's kind of like it has, when you describe that, to me, it feels like the beautiful open naivete of a child who would just be like, okay, let's put it together. And then, but with all of the access to actual um, things to put together, right? Uh, uh, and so it kind of, that's why it sounds fun to me because it, it it's not judging itself when it puts it yes. together, right? It's not, there's no self-reflection. So it's not like, this is really bad. I'm not sure about it. Let's obsess over this drawing for 15 hours. Let's take out that. Let's do that. It's just like, here it is. What do you if know? They can, if they I haven't can done cut... the art piece okay. yet. I feel bad about doing the art piece because I know so many artists who work, you know. Well, that's what artists are saying about screenwriters, though. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I just think once Chat GPT can like get to the point where it has crippling self doubt and questions every decision it makes, then they will have created the right. I will say there is lag. Exactly. There was lag occasionally when I asked it to do something fairly complicated. Like, wow. you know, the text rolls out in front of you so you can read it. But there were times when it would like stop and think and then roll out and stop because I kept adding like I was like, OK, how far can I push this thing? You know, and, you know, and I was putting Man, log lines in of shows. I was putting log lines in of shows that exist and I would write right ex episode examples, you know, and then it would write, you know, when so and so and they were never they would never tracked. Um, even though the shows see, exist yeah. on the internet and they, you know, the the AI can see it. It was just always just a little off. So, you know, I don't know. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I'm probably offending tons of people who think it's the devil and threatening all of our screenwriting careers and all that stuff. But I, I know that what I bring to the table is the me of it. You know, I mean, so I'll, I'll be fine. Right. Until 20 <laughs> years from now when I'm, you know, not writing anymore and, they're using computers but it's happening oh, yeah. fast i wonder if it's 20 years or if it's actually like three oh, i think okay. uh, like i think we i think chat gpt and, the, and they're like it's already at a place where i wouldn't have expected it to be mm. so you're quickly. saying in two years yeah. it's going to be like it is now when they bring a woman writer a script written by a man but it's about a woman so they're like hey just like females <laughs> zhuzh this up like zhuzh it up so it feels like a female was involved it's going to be like that it's gonna be like here the, the the computer wrote this but like zhuzh it up so it feels like a human wrote it that's what's gonna happen i i, I don't see think that. you're wrong yeah i can see that I, totally based on what the output i was getting i could see if somebody handed me one of those like treatments that i was having it generate i could put something special into it and make it seem like a human wrote it totally that's basically what's yeah happen. it's the tech version of like 39 monkeys in a room with a typewriter <laughs> but but you know it's not too far i mean it's like four steps ahead of course because they're going to hand you pages but it is the same thing as a studio coming to you and saying we would like to do an elvis movie and we're thinking about it in the amadeus structure i mean it's kind of close to what they're going to still do they're just going to hand you some robot pages based on it so i mean you know so true. i'm 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 getting calls where you know producers come up with ideas and they're like we want to do something in this realm or we have an idea for a thriller i mean that does already happen um it's just going to be you're going to get more stuff to work with probably it's like um, IP. It's kind of like IP. Okay, we're going to be do the yeah. Sunshine Polly version of the chat. <laughs> but no, I know that there is big conversations in the screenwriting community about how dangerous this is. And, you know, not 
you know, is it in the MBA for negotiations and all, how are we protected as screenwriters, as humans with this stuff? So my experience, just a caveat is literally like I opened it and I goofed around with it. I don't, I have don't send thought- her emails is what she's saying. Do not yes, send her. I don't get on the Facebook page and start railing about I it. Haven't, just- I oh. haven't thought deeply yet about these ramifications because I am busy being scared about other things. So I'm just, it was, I played for a little bit, but it's not a tool I'm probably going to use for my actual writing. Just saying. It sounds like we're talking about drugs or something. We're like, I tried it, but just once and I'm never going to go back. (laughs) So, so true. Well, I feel so scared talking about this because like, I know it's such a contentious subject. That's all right. Let's contention the guts creativity. Let's go get on the Facebook page. Argue with us. Let's see it. Let's go. Um, Jeremy, it was so fun to have you here. We have three uh, questions that we always ask at the end um, to wrap it up. So I'll ask the first one, which is um, what makes you, you know, the happiest about writing? Uh, You know, I've discovered over the past year that one of the things that makes me happiest is conversations like these. Honestly, I love talking about writing. I love being in conversation with fellow creators and an audience. And when you do get lucky enough to have a movie go in the theaters, you get to do that. So it's the best. That's awesome. Uh, so what pisses you off about writing? Uh, probably the hardest thing is the solitary nature of it. You know, it's just, uh, that's, that was something that didn't bother me when I was as much when I was younger, but is less and less appealing. Um, but then again, after uh, months and weeks in writer's room, you're dying to be alone. So, you know, it's always the grass is always greener. It's always the yin and yang of it. (laughs) Yep. And then finally, Jeremy, if you could be remembered for one scene that you've written, what scene would that be and why? Of something I've actually written or just something I wish I had written? No, that you've written. (laughs) That (laughs) I've written. (laughs) Uh, You know... I love I do love the scene uh, at the at the hayride where people don't know who this guy is. And, you know, just that moment where it's like it just strikes the the audience and the girls in particular who just can't help it. They're freaking out. He's tapped into something um, and that is scary and liberating and exciting all at once. And just like the the reaction of the guys around them who are just like flipping out, like what the fuck is happening? And just the birth of this Dionysian God in front of everybody's eyes, you know, was, was one of the most exciting things. And I felt that the movie, the scene that I watched on screen really brought it to life. Uh, so I was super excited scene. about it's that. A great scene. Yeah. I agree. Great scene. Yeah. Jeremy, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being Thank you on the guys show. so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. And uh, Elvis is currently streaming on HBO Max and is up for eight Oscars this year. Woohoo! <laughs> Amazing. Thanks for being here. It was super Thank fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Before we wrap up, a few announcements. We have a live Q&A session with both Lauren and I coming to our Patreon community on Wednesday, February 15th. You can access this event as well as our most recent Mock Writers Room workshop, which was fantastic, with Sean Prezant, by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com uh, backslash the screenwriting life. So thanks so much for joining us today. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to the screenwriting life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. 
Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life or email us at the screenwriting life at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it. And not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.